Today's mailbag comes to us from Diane. I'm new and I have a win for the Sunday basket. I've been thinking for a while that I should check all of my accounts closely to make sure that there aren't any errors, erroneous charges, etc. But because I'd only been thinking about it, I hadn't done it until I dropped a note card into my Sunday basket. Well, there was a recurring charge on my credit card and because it was to a restaurant that I frequent, I didn't think anything of it. But looking more closely, I realized it was a subscription that I had started last April and that I don't use, and it has been charging my card $13 every month. Needless to say, I am kicking myself for having wasted so much money, but I am so glad I caught it thanks to my Sunday basket. Do you have an organized 365 success story? If so, we would love to hear about it. Please send us an email at customerservice at organized365 and tell us how you have taken back your home, your paper, and your life with Organized 365. Welcome to the Organized 365 podcast. I'm your host, professional organizer, productivity expert, and motivational speaker, Lisa Woodruff. This podcast will help you embrace progress over perfection and create lasting functional organizing in your home. I have so much to share with you, so let's get started. I have these big ideas, big questions, big observations that I think about when I'm driving, when I'm going to bed, when I'm in the shower, how different related concepts are viewed in different environments and how they actually are all talking about the same thing. We're just using different words to describe them. So this episode and the next episode, I want you to give me a little bit of latitude to verbally process with you where I am thinking that we are in our understanding of how we're functioning inside of our families, especially as the head of the household, as far as the administration of what's going on at home. For two reasons. One, I just want to verbally process it so I can record that I this is where I am thinking about this. But secondly, because I just believe that we are better together. And I wholeheartedly, the older I get, the more I embrace collaboration. And I understand that I am but a little pittance, (laughs) whatever, like, I'm just alone on my own. I'm just this small, uh, little being. But together, collectively, we are so much more complete and powerful and have so much more capacity together. It doesn't have to be my idea. I don't have to be the one in charge. I just want us to better understand what is happening inside of the American home, because that's my experience. I can't speak outside of America, although I know there are a lot of you in Canada and the UK and Australia, English-speaking countries, and even non-English-speaking countries who have very similar understandings. So this is where I am coming into this episode and the next one. And in this episode, I want to really talk about the weight of the mental load inside of households. And I'm going to hit this from a couple of different angles. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about what I've been learning in my PhD, different things I've been reading, different things I've observed. 
So I'm going to start by talking about what is cognitive load. Now, I'm, I'm specifically saying cognitive load, and I'm not using the term mental load or mother load. I'm using cognitive load for a reason. So I'm reading from Wikipedia now, and it says, in cognitive psychology, cognitive load refers to the amount of working memory resources used. So hold on to that. We're going to talk about working memory in a minute. I'm skipping down. Cognitive load theory was developed in the late 1980s out of a study of problem solving by John Sweller. Sweller argued that instructional design can be used to reduce cognitive load in learners. Much later, other researchers developed a way to measure perceived mental effort, which is indicative of cognitive load. Task invoked pupillarity response, pupil response, is a reliable and sensitive measurement of cognitive load that is directly related to working memory. Information may only be stored in long-term memory after it's first attended to and processed by working memory. Working memory, however, is limited in both capacity and duration. These limits will, under some conditions, impede learning. And here's what I highlighted in green. Heavy cognitive load can have negative effects on task completion. And it is important to note that the experience of cognitive load is not the same in everyone. The elderly, students, and children experience different and more often higher amounts of cognitive load. The fundamental tenet of cognitive load theory is that the quality of instructional design will be raised if greater consideration is given to the role and limitations of working memory. With increased distractions, particularly from cell phone use, students will be more prone to experiencing high cognitive load, which will reduce academic success. I will tell you, now we're to Lisa speak now. That was Wikipedia, cognitive load. I will tell you that when I read anything, now this isn't academic literature, it's Wikipedia, but the, I write down and I'm like, and what about at the home? Like when they're like, and this is what happens in business, I'm like, and what about in the home? And this is what happens in school, and what about in the home? There is... Not a lot of literature I have found, and please send me any, any links you want related to how all of these cognitive processes that we talk about in school and we talk about in work, what about in the home? What about in the home? Okay, so working memory. Working memory, as defined by Rabavinci, is four things. Working memory remembers tasks processes information, creates a plan, and makes decisions. So again, working memory, remembers tasks, processes information, creates a plan, and makes decisions. We do that at home from the time we open our eyes in the morning until the time we close them for a nap or go to bed. Like, And even when we go to bed, we're still trying to remember things, process information, make a plan, and make decisions for the next day. Like, We never stop doing this inside of our households, and yet and yet, we're not studying that. So if I reread from Wikipedia what it says about cognitive load theory, heavy cognitive load, aka managing a household, can have negative effects on task completion, duh. And it is important to note that the experience of cognitive load is not the same in everyone. Right, women at home are drowning. Could you please send us a lifeline? So the cognition at home, the cognitive load, 
is discussed in academia in relation to housework, especially the fact that women are doing more. It doesn't matter what gender or ethnicity you look at, definitely women are doing more. And I really want us to just do a lot less. But regardless, women are doing more. And there are studies about this cognitive load, this mental load of women at home. However, I don't usually see the hop taken to the fact that cognitive load is based on working memory. It's the working memory piece that I really want to tap into because we don't know everything about working memory, but we know a lot. We know a lot about working memory. So when I think about our role at home as household managers and the cognitive role at home, there's no end to our day. There's no quitting time. There's no ending time. There is an abundance of complexity because we have very few systems and structures at home. You have systems and structures inherently in a corporate or a school setting, less if you're in an entrepreneur or homeschool setting. So if you're an entrepreneur that homeschools at home, like you've got like very little structure to build your systems on, which adds a lot of complexity and additional decision-making that needs to be made. And then you layer on top of that the fact that there are just a bazillion trillion, that's the actual number I counted, little teeny tiny tasks that you have to do at home. Like there are just so many random things. I find myself specifically this week, I was like, okay, I've got all these things going on. I'll just run faster. I'll just do these things more because certainly if I get done with my Sunday basket, if I get done with my to-do list, what do we think is going to happen? I'm like, then I'll be done. Then I'll have free time. No, I won't. There'll just be more things that come on that list. Like the list is not going to end until we die. And even when you die, somebody has to settle your estate. Like the to-dos of life, life can be less, but they're never going to go away. And to be honest, I don't want them to go away because I love my rich, crazy, productive, chaotic life. I, I love the fact that I need to juggle Abby's and Joey's needs and Grayson's and Greg's and the house and the condo and the business. I love that. I love the complexity of the life that I've created. So I don't really want them to go away. But there are so many of them. There are just so many, many, many different kinds of tasks that need to be done. And here's the thing. It's all invisible. It's all invisible. And when you talk about cognitive load theory, you talk about cognitive load, where's the visibility of the mental weight of the cognitive load? Now in class, I am learning about um, that there are these memory traces and you can actually see different parts of the brain light up as different memories are created and retrieved and encoded and that is very fascinating to me. But if you don't have one of these magical machines that is watching your brain, you see what I'm saying? Like it's invisible. The work is invisible. And I think the invisibleness of the work adds to the cognitive load. What? Yes. I think the fact that the work is invisible adds to the cognitive load in a couple of ways. One, I think it adds to the cognitive load because I think we gaslight ourselves into thinking maybe we're not doing as much as we're actually doing because we can't even see what we actually did. And the other way in which I think that it really impedes us because it is invisible is that you know no one else can really see what we're doing. 
And therefore, we don't get the attaboys and the gold stars and the thank you very much and good job that you would normally get if you were in corporate America or if you were in school that will keep you going a little bit further. Like when somebody says thank you, you're like, and I'm going to come back tomorrow and do it twice as fast. You know, like it just it just helps you go. So you're thinking, maybe I'm not really doing as much as I think I'm doing. And then also, no one's there to go and you're doing a great job. Just keep it up. So it's like a double whammy. And you're like, why do I feel exhausted all of the time? And yet I can't really even see the weight of what it is I am doing. So I've said a lot recently that I want to make visible the invisible. I want to make visible the invisible tasks that are done at home, at school, at work. The, the administrative work that teachers are doing is in the teacher work box. The job description work that, that employees are doing that's not related to the brand new project that's going to be done at the end of the month comes in the work box. I've, I think that the organized 365 systems have really done a good job of making visible these invisible administrative parts of every kind of our life. However, at home, even though we have the Sunday basket, I I want to really, in this podcast, make really, really visible the invisible work that you're doing. So this is my, we're, we're into my hypothesis, my thesis, let's just call it my pink bubble of thinking. I have all of this academia knowledge now, and I'm pulling it together, and I'm wondering if these different pieces go together. So I'm going to pull a whole bunch of different things together. And I, of course, would love your feedback. Feel free to email me. So when you think about the Sunday basket that's on your kitchen counter, which, yes, it holds the mail. And, yes, it holds, you know, any of the actionable to-dos, library returns, things that need to be returned. Uh, I just got a text that my glasses are ready to pick up. You know, you put that in the Sunday basket. All those actionables are in there. My premise, uh, and I'm really starting to double down on this, so you guys should tell me if you think I'm going down the wrong path. I'm really starting to double down on the fact that the uniqueness of the Sunday basket and why I think it works so well is the fact that you write things down on paper. So what's great about the Sunday basket, but not great when you want to study it in academia, is that I designed it to literally work for any kind of learner. So if you are... Um, someone that really likes a lot of detail, you can use a lot of slash pockets. If you're someone who doesn't like a lot of detail, you could just throw everything in the Sunday basket and literally only use the red, orange, yellow, green, blue slash pockets. Um, You know, like there's just, if you've got five kids, every kid can have a slash pocket. If you like, there are just so many different ways that you can use the Sunday basket and then so many supports built into it that make most people successful in using it. So there's a physical component. You get an actual box. There's a workbook that's printed so you can read things and take notes if you want to. There's a community component and there's a co-working time component and there are videos on the dashboard that walk you through step-by-step through what to do. And then there are additional tear pads that you can buy and other events that you can do that really will take your Sunday basket deeper. Because there's all of that stuff, How can you then in academia figure out why it's improving mental capacity in women who are using it, which is the outcome that I am observing? So my hypothesis or what I'm thinking, and I'm really moving down the trail of, it's this recorded thought on paper. Why? Why am I so 
hell-bent on the fact that it's this recorded thought on paper. Like, and even with my professors, I'll be like, I think it's the recorded thought on paper. And they'll be like, it's the planning, it's the community, it's the, I'm like, I realize it's all the things, but I really think the science part of it is that we're writing it on paper. And here's why. Number one, it gets the thought out of your head, aka it moves it out of working memory and externalizes it. I don't, I really have not really found any literature that says that that way. So if you know of any, I'm open to that. And also when I talked to my professor who's a cognitive psychologist, she said she hasn't seen any studies that say that that way. She's like, this is like not how we normally tackle working memory by trying to empty our working memory. And I was like, okay, but maybe could we test it? <laughs> so I think the fact that you write it down and get it out of your working memory, I think that is key. Number two, I think the fact that it is written by your hand is also key. So there's got to be more to this. I found four different studies that kind of go in line to explain that um, in multiple different settings, over and over and over again, there is support that writing by hand versus typing or even writing with a stylus on like an iPad or, or typing something into a phone, when you write by hand, the information gets encoded deeper into your brain. So I am then thinking about that and I re read this other study and this other study says, you do not stop walking because you get older. You get older because you stop walking. That was what this, and I don't have the study in front of me, but that is what this research said. I'm sure you can Google it. You'll find it really fast because many people will talk about this study. And I was like, interesting. First of all, I should get up and start walking right now. <laughs> I would definitely start walking right now. But this study showed that, yes, it is the fact of being sedentary makes you old, not that you are old and then all of a sudden you decline in the walking. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to take that one hop further. If that's what we have already supported, then my question is, and I was talking to somebody about this last night. She said, my handwriting has gotten so much worse. I'm like, mine too. So does your handwriting get worse as you age or is it not using your handwriting makes your handwriting worse? Like logically you'd be like, yeah, it's probably not using your handwriting makes it worse. Okay, so then I'm gonna hop, I'm skipping around a little bit. In my reading this week, I'm reading from um, Fundamentals of Cognitive Neuroscience, A Beginner's Guide by Gage and Bars. It says, many studies have provided evidence that the process of retrieving a memory is more effective in strengthening a memory than by re-studying it. The study that they're talking about is when you're in school and you want to learn something for a test, if you keep rereading the same information or going through the same flashcards over and over and over again, that is re-studying the same information. That is not as effective as retrieving a memory. So like, let's say that you needed to learn the 50 United States. You could have 50 index cards and you could use those index cards and keep going through them, going through them, going through them, as in restudying the names of the 50 states. Or you could have a map of the United States and you could sit there and try to label as many of those states as you could just from your memory. And that sitting there and going, okay, well, I know where Florida is. I know where Texas is. I know where California is. I live in Ohio, so I know where Ohio is. Out in the West gets a little murky when you get all those square states. What are those four that are all, <laughs> which one's on top of which? 
um, that may be a little murky, but people who study that way do better on the test than people who just flip through the index cards because they're actually engaging their memory in retrieving what it has already learned. And then you get down to the fact that you only know 38 out of the 50, and then you study those 12 again, and then you figure out where those are. And it's a different way of learning. So hopping back to the Sunday basket then... Is the fact that you write that note on paper versus typing it into a phone, does that help you retrieve a memory? Have you ever had a little note? I mean, I do this daily. I grab a little notepad and I have a thought and I write it down and then I go, oh, I had a second thought. What was that thought? I wait, I retrieve that thought and I write that one down on the paper. So now I have two little notes that I'm going to put in my Sunday basket or my Friday workbox. That act of stopping and going, what was it I was going to write down? And for me, I always look up and to the right, what was I going to write down? Because I just did it now while I was recording. And then I remember, and then I write it down. I think that's what they're talking about here. I think that I am retrieving a memory and writing it down. And the physical act of writing it down is encoding it deeper into my memory, even though I am taking it out of my working memory. I think, again, this is all hypothesis. I think when you when you sit there and you go, what did I want to remember? Oh yeah, this is what I want to remember. And I write it down by hand. It pulls it out of my working memory onto the paper and then allows it to leave my working memory, but I pulled it out of my longer term memory and then it goes in the basket. So now my working memory is clear and ready for whatever I want to think about next. The memory has both been deeper encoded in my brain and also recorded in the real world and put in the Sunday basket. Yeah, I don't even know how you find a study for that, but I think that that's what we're actually doing. Then the third thing, so recording, so the Sunday basket, one, gets the recording out of my head, two, it is written. I think there's a lot about this fact that it is written by hand. Then third, the idea or the thing that I needed to remember is triage for later urgency. So I could put it in the Sunday basket or I could put it right next to my phone and make sure that I get it done today. The key here is I no longer have to think or remember whatever that thought was once I put that idea on a piece of paper because it's now visible in the Sunday basket or the Friday workbox. And when I see that note again written in my own hand, it resurfaces, it retrieves that memory again, I feel in a stronger way because it is such a kinesthetic way of learning. So another thought I had when I was reading this week, so also from this week, does this repeated interaction with this task that needs to be done deepen the memory trace of this experience and the recall? If you're a psychologist, feel free to weigh in. Okay, so I wanted to share you something out of the app. I forgot about that and I closed this down. Hold on. Okay, here we go. So like I said, I believe that I'm getting this PhD in order for us to be able to do this research as it relates to household administration. I do feel like this is an all skate. So I'm bringing you along with me on the journey because I don't think that this is just for me to do. And here is a way in which I feel confirmed in this. So inside of the app, this is February 14th. Someone says, 
A win for the Sunday basket. I just finished seven phone calls, which I hate, to pay bills and make appointments. I figured out that I have trouble going downstairs in the mornings, especially when my first task is phone calls. When I schedule them later, I delay my first thing, so I run out of time before I start to work. So this time, I brought up my list and my slash pocket and credit card last night. I made all my phone calls from in bed and pushed through when I wanted to abandon the last two on my list. It only took a couple of years, but I finally figured out how to remove these obstacles. And I was able to set an appointment for this afternoon where I would have had to wait until March. So then somebody else says, oh my gosh, I get it. I had something similar last month where I had this really nice bottle of body moisturizer for probably two years on the floor of my bathroom with the intention of lathering up after a shower. But it was always so chilly when I got out that I couldn't face doing it, so I'd jump into my cozy bathrobe instead and then feel guilty. After starting the Productive Home Solution in January, I thought to myself, self, yes, why don't you put the bottle in the shower and then put it on while you're still in your steam cocoon and then step out and put on the robe. Why, that's genius. So I did. And now I moisturize every day and I literally move that bottle 30 inches and now I use it. So then someone else commented back and they said, I love this. I have another one that I started a couple years ago on the other end of the day. I have some meds that I need to take a couple of hours before going to bed. I started by setting an alarm to remind me that only worked about a quarter of the time because I didn't want to interrupt what I was doing to go upstairs and get them. Then I'd forget and be awake a couple of hours longer than I should by the time I finally took them. I had a pill container that I would count them into a week at a time, but it took me a few years to figure that I should just take that container in my basket that was always with me. That way, I don't have to get up or go too far to take them. Now I'm up to 80% taking them on time. It's so funny what we can figure out when we take a little bit of time. So then another one comments, yes, I wonder what the psychological barrier is. How can we identify in ourselves and in other areas? Food for thought. I do know that as mentioned previously, I can already see how my brain is being rewired since I started using the Sunday Basket and the Productive Home Systems. I'd be interested in what science psychology is behind this. Lisa Woodruff, how about a term paper on this? You guys, I want to do more research than has ever been humanly done, which is why I want you to help. So I, I agree. I mean, I think that we all are, we all know there's something here, but how do you figure out what is here? So here's another thing that I've learned in psychology. There is quantitative study and qualitative study. So quantitative study is what I am doing in my psychology courses. My advisor is very much about quantitative science. Quantitative is numbers-driven, survey-driven, data-driven. Uh, what can we measure? What can we test? Those surveys can be done faster than qualitative, and so you can have a done dissertation instead of living in everything but dissertation land for a long time. Another reason why qualitative is, is sometimes preferred when you're getting a PhD. Qualitative is more like interviewing people. I was, t I was talking to someone, actually, and we were talking about qualitative study and how you can develop new theories through grounded research, through interviews. I was like, like the Wednesday podcast, because I think we have 300 of those. She's like, yeah, you could literally just take the transcripts from the Wednesday podcast and start a grounded theory from that. I was like, oh, game on. <laughs> I was like so excited about that. Qualitative research is done through structured interviews, transcripts, 
and basically realizing that there's something there. Like we're all saying there's something here and there there isn't already quantitative academic literature and discussion around it. So instead of building 10 different studies that are going to get you to where you are today, you can interview people today and from that understanding qualitatively of the lived experience, you can pull out and extrapolate out the theory behind why people are feeling the way they are. And then there's mixed methods which combines them. So I will be taking qualitative study as one of my electives. So when I have my PhD, I will be able to do quantitative and qualitative learning, okay? And I might not have said that exactly correctly, so just please forgive me if I said something a little bit incorrectly there. So back to the cognitive load theory. Because the Sunday basket is an actual physical product, it is visible. And because I have counseled to physically write down your ideas on paper, that also is physical. So now we have a physical representation on your kitchen counter of your cognitive load, your working memory that has written, been written down on little pieces of paper that now has a physical mass to it. It has an actual measurable weight. Science measures things that can be seen. That's why memory trace in working memory is so important, being able to do these images of the brain and be able to see how the brain lights up when memory goes in and when memory comes out. And why one of my professors said to me, we need to know where planning is in the brain. We don't know where planning is in the brain. Maybe I could find it. I'm like, what are you smoking? <laughs> that I could find where, I mean, scientists want to know the exact location of all these things in the brain. They don't, they don't want things to be, you know, touchy-feely. They want to actually have hard science. They want to have physical representation. Welcome to the Sunday Basket. Here is physical representation of over 10,000 women's cognitive load right there sitting on their counters. So this is where I am on this. I don't have any answers for you. I am just saying that I am working really hard to become a doctor so that I can do a lot of research in collaboration with you if you'd like to and understand where this conversation is right now so that we can look at this physical representation in the Sunday basket, this weight, the actual physical weight of the cognitive load of household management. I don't know where it is in the brain. I don't know if it's long-term versus short-term memory versus whatever. I don't know any of those things. I will try to find it so that we can have a discussion in academia. But this is where I think all of these puzzle pieces are fitting together. And I would love to receive an email from you if you have thoughts that are similar to this or you have research or connections that are of people who are on the same page. And just for funsies, for those of you who have a Sunday basket, I would love for you to go and weigh your Sunday basket. My Sunday basket's at home. I'm going to wear it on Sunday. I weighed one of my Friday work boxes here that's not even really full, and I was astounded at how much it weighed. I know it weighs a lot because our first Sunday basket manufacturer, when, when they decided to stop manufacturing the Sunday basket for us... They said, my expectations were too high for this little box. 
they said the demands and the specifications that you have for this box and what you want it to stand up to and the weight that you want it to hold are untenable. <laughs> so we will no longer be making you the box. That's when we went from a paper box to a sewn box. And these sewn boxes that are on your kitchen counter are holding a very heavy load. And what I want to say to you about that is that you are holding a very heavy cognitive load. This cognitive load is comprised of your finances, your meal planning, your bills that need to be paid, the mail, the cleaning schedule, the like the projects that are in process, the requests of your time, the fact that you need to get milk, that the dog needs to have his filiantic, like so many little pieces of information that are just literally weighing you down. And I think the reason why I say you save five hours a week, other people will say, you know, they have so much more mental clarity once they start the Sunday basket is because we literally are taking the homeowner's cognitive load externalizing it, putting it in a box and setting it on a kitchen table. Yeah, you're going to feel lighter. Go lift up your Sunday basket, weigh it. Tell me how much it weighs. That is literally the mental weight that you have removed from your shoulders. And what a better month than the month that the Sunday basket was born. March is the Sunday basket birth month. So we'll be talking about the Sunday basket or we've been talking about the Sunday basket for the last couple of weeks. We're going to do some fun things online. So go in the app, go on Instagram. We're going to be asking you this weekend, how much does your Sunday basket weigh? It's not from, a, oh, I'm better than you because my Sunday basket's so heavy or who could see whose Sunday basket is the heaviest. It is a physical representation of the invisible work that you are doing. And I'm here to say, boy, you're doing a great job. Here's your gold star. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking care of your family and your community and your household and being financially responsible and cleaning up your messes and making your bed and doing your laundry. And you are doing a great job. And the invisible work that you're doing that is it, it is happening. You're not not doing it. You are doing a lot of work. And hopefully, somehow, through collaboration, we will be able to scientifically support what is actually happening cognitively for the homeowner in all of the roles and responsibilities that they are doing that are invisible to themselves and those that they live with, making it visible so we can have a conversation, so we can eliminate as much as possible, so you can do what you are uniquely created to do with your time, which is not more dishes and laundry.